This podcast is sponsored by JP Morgan Investment Trusts, offering innovative investment options for your stocks and shares ISA. Hello, welcome to CityWire Funds Fanatic. My name is Gavin Lumsden and I'm continuing our ISA season conversations with global investment trust managers. So I'm very pleased to uh, introduce you to Andrew Bell, Chief Executive of Witten. Um, hello, Andrew. Thanks very much for uh, making time to uh, speak to me. Um, could you just start off by reminding everyone, what does Witten do? What do you do at Witten and where do you get the name from? Ah, well, Witten, like an, an awful lot of the early investment trusts, doesn't really describe very adequately what we actually do. Uh, it's, the name comes from an Anglo-Saxon word meaning a council of elders, a Witten Agamot, it used to be called. And I guess that the original board of directors thought of themselves as a council of uh, elderly wise men and decided to call themselves after that. So we were set up in 1909 to manage the fortunes of one family. And what we do now is to manage the investments of many people around the country uh, investing in global equities. OK. And, and, the idea, and you're using a multi-manager approach. So that's picking up on this Witan yes. name in a way, doesn't it? You've mm-hmm. got a collection of hopefully wise uh, and skilled fund managers. You use eight of them in all to, uh, to, yeah. to manage all, to do the assets. Um, and you, you, Witan had uh, annual results recently and uh, they showed, a, you know, it's a difficult year, 2020, yes. for, uh, for most investors. And, uh, uh, but the results showed you, you, you had a strong rebound after a very difficult first half. So yes. uh, that left the returns were, were positive, which was, which was good. But mm-hmm. how, how are you feeling about markets and uh, prospects for stock markets now after, after the upheaval of uh, 2020? I'm feeling pretty positive, actually. I mean, not remotely complacent because the, the market's a bit like a, you know, a terrier. If you get complacent, it's going to bite you in the ankle. But uh, we're watchful, but quite optimistic. And the reason is that clearly a lot of companies have adapted to the changes that were forced on us by COVID. So I think productivity by companies will have improved. And the vaccines are promising a route towards some normalization of economic and social life this year. That's coming against the background where interest rates are at record low levels and there's a massive amount of fiscal stimulus being applied worldwide. So it seems to us more than likely that uh, might start at different points in different countries, but we're going to see a spurt in growth and probably quite rapid growth for the next one to two years with a commitment to public investment, whether motivated by climate change or whatever. Uh, I think you need to be selective because the markets, some parts of the markets ran very strongly last year and will have discounted the outlook. There are other parts of the market that still look pretty depressed and maybe hoping for the, the light to shine on them. That's Yes. And what are the main lessons? Uh, you've referred to the fact that uh, there's an opportunity for, for businesses to work more efficiently. That immediately mm-hmm. makes me think of you know, online, uh, the surge in online uh, traffic and, and business. Yes. And, and just today we've heard Ocado, the online supermarket, uh, reporting that uh, sales are up 40% uh, over a year ago. Um, yeah, what do you think of the m- main long-term changes that are coming from um, the, the pandemic? Uh, well, to paraphrase Lenin, there are, there are years when nothing happens and weeks when years happen. And 2020 certainly seems to have been uh, uh, catalyzed a dramatic acceleration of established trends, such as being able to work remotely, communicate with each other, home entertainment, shopping from home. We, we were faced with very little choice. So, um, so you probably saw two or three years of 
of acceleration in those trends. And, and obviously, on the other side of the coin, um, it, it was very difficult for anybody in the, in the entertainment and hospitality business to, to get any sort of traction at all. I, we've been told as companies for the last 10 or 20 years that you have to have business continuity plans in case your building blows up or terrorist attack, whatever it is. You had to show resilience that you had a, a backstop plan. And I think one of the lessons for society is that, is that countries are going to need to have business continuity plans in, in, in the way, for example, of having a redundancy in your healthcare systems. You know, one of the, the main reason for closing down countries was that the, uh, the, there was unacceptable burden of disease going around the country. And it was, you know, uh, I, I think there's a, um, it, there will be pressure in future to make sure that you have spare capacity to cope with the unexpected. Right. So that sounds like you know, more increased, uh, increased public expenditure, state expenditure, therefore higher taxes. I guess we've seen that uh, in, the, in the recent budget here in the UK. I, I, yeah, well, de definitely. I mean, I think the most governments appear to be devoted to trying to crank up growth before putting taxes up. And that's that's partly looking 10 years ago. But the, the unprecedented boost uh, to public spending in the wake of the financial financial crisis was probably reversed too quickly. So uh, the the political mood now seems to be to get growth going and then subsequently sort out how we pay for it later. Well, that brings us on to what the, the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, um, closely watched institution because the US is the biggest economy, in, just about still, it's mm -hmm. the biggest economy in the world. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it makes... Uh, Pivotal uh, monthly decisions around uh, interest rates. Um, recently, um, yeah, I mean, its recent decision to to forecast that uh, the U.S. economy is bouncing back nicely, forecasting six and a half percent growth this year, mm -hmm. but also saying that it, it's minded to keep interest rates, U.S. interest rates, you know, near zero for another two or three years till 2024. In fact, um, you know, is the Fed doing the right thing there in sort of reassuring markets that interest rates are stay, staying low, or or is it? Um, you know, just stoking inflationary fires. I, by, I, I um... think they're they're balancing things about right at the moment, um, and they, there are two motivations for it. One is that a degree of reassurance is required because after all the stops and starts of the last twelve months or so, uh, recovery is still fragile and it is vulnerable to setback if, you know, if something happened to you know, vaccination programs or the disease uh, came back. Um, so I think in the near term, it's very important to keep confidence, consumer confidence and business confidence, uh, 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 you know, reassured and, and on the positive tack. If the economy overheats, they can cool it. I mean, that doesn't mean it will be painless because if, you know, once inflation really does break out, the costs of, of getting on top of it, as we found back in the 1970s, can be quite considerable. But in the near term, the concern is to make sure that we have a, a proper robust recovery um, in uh, consumer spending and in business investment. Uh, the other motivation for keeping interest rates low is, is less attractive from the, and, and it's something which officialdom will never admit to publicly, which is in past instances where you've had very high national debt, such as at the moment, have been followed by long periods when interest rates were kept below the inflation rate. And uh, we seem to be in one of those periods now. It's, it's otherwise known as financial repression. 
and effectively it's bad for returns on bonds and cash because money in the bank is being rewarded at less than the uh, rate of inflation, but it's generally speaking supportive for economic growth and ultimately the value of real assets. It's, um, as, as it's, I think it's inevitable that if you have too much debt, which we currently do, it's either going to have to be, uh, it either won't be repaid, well I think governments will repay, or else the value of what it's repaid in will have been deba debased. And, and I think uh, that you know, there's a message there for asset allocation. Yes. So inflation is, 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 it has been very low for a long time, but is, is, is coming back, it would seem. Uh, and in that context, uh, you know, one, of the, uh, one of the many things that got hit last year was dividends. But dividends are important. That investment income coming off uh, equities is, is, is even yes. more important when uh, interest rates are so low. And perhaps inflation is, is coming back to erode the power of, mm. you know, the spending power of people's money. Um, I mean, it's, it, dividends are interesting with an investment trust like yourself. You're one of this uh, band of uh, dividend heroes. If uh, You've just declared uh, uh, another year of dividend rises, the 46th consecutive year, so well, well done. But actually last year you saw investment income basically halve mm -hmm. as companies were yes. cutting dividends uh, in the UK and around the world because of the pandemic. Um, you're able to do that, grow your dividend, even though that there's not the income yep. there, because you've got reserves. Yeah. Um, you know, where, where, could you just tell us where you think, uh, how long are you able to continue doing that? And what, do you, and what are the prospects for dividends more broadly? I think the first thing I'd say is that we're total return investors rather than dividend seekers per se. Um, we're not sort of chasing after yield. But uh, having a, a growing income from a portfolio is, is both a reality check that you, you, that you have companies which are throwing off cash in the medium term. And also it's a, it's a measure of the, uh, the growth that's spinning off from those companies. And, and over the last you know, 46 years, as you say, we've compounded our dividend at quite a, a, a smart rate over time. Um, even though the total return on, it's, it's been a minority of the total return our shareholders have enjoyed. The reserves that we have after last year's drawing down of reserves are equivalent to about one and a quarter times our annual dividend. And uh, so they're available to support uh, further, you know, if we have some more years of shortfall in dividend income, which I think is is possible for a few years, um, but but we expect dividends to grow quite rapidly for this year and and maybe next year as something of a bounce back from the exceptional cuts last year. It, it's almost without precedent to to see uh, substantial cuts in market dividends, and it's it's, it's pretty much. Uh, with com completely without precedent to see them spread across such a wide swathe of the market as we saw last year. So um, I'd expect to see some bounce back, both on the back of economic recovery and as companies that took precautions last year feel bolder, if you like, uh, in 2021 and two. Longer term, uh, our dividend, our portfolio dividends have tended to grow at about uh, 10 or 11% a year. And, and I think that's a sort of slightly more normal uh, rate of growth. So what we anticipate is that over the, the next, you know, the coming years, our dividend cover, which was just under 60% last year, will steadily uh, rebuild. And we expect to be able to continue growing our dividend at a more moderate pace than the 9% or so of the last decade as our cover rebuilds. And, and that's something that we've recently committed to. And, uh, and, and so far, the signs are that dividend growth is starting to come back. Um, the pulse is returning to the dividend beast 
in, in the early months of this year. Yes, there have been companies you know, reinstating their dividends, which has been uh, great to see. Um, yes, sticking with the uh, the investment trust and, and, and what the results showed, uh, I mean, you um, restructured uh, the portfolio after changing the benchmark, the stock market benchmark you used to measure yeah. Britain's performance uh, last year. And um, as a result, I think you, you know, the, the weighting to, to the US has gone up. So you've increased... Uh, have you increased the allocation to, to the US? Because it's standing at 35% at the moment. Yeah, uh, yeah we, ha- we, have, we have effectively. I mean, a, a year ago, we, uh, w- w- um, or at the beginning of 2020, we, we moved from a benchmark which had 25% in the US to one that had approximately 50% in the US. And that was re- reflected what we felt that our shareholders wanted from us. They didn't want a big uh, presence in the UK so much. They wanted to have something that was more more of a participant in the opportunities from global growth. And a lot of the growth opportunities have happened to be concentrated in, in North America because of biotechnology and computing and so forth. Um, so we, we've moved to that benchmark, but we were a bit slow, as we've said in our reports to the market, we were too slow in making the adjustment. So we ended up uh, chasing our tails a little bit in the early part of last year, that we had too little representation to the technology parts of the market that were seeing upgrades and too much representation in Europe and the UK, which were seeing downgrades. But but whereas a year ago that was down to how we'd allocated to different sorts of managers, now, although we're underweight in the US um, with 35% against 49% of our benchmark, um, that's really down to the stock picks of our managers. If they were, if they felt neutral about the U.S., we'd be pretty well fully weighted in the U.S. And and the reason that we have a a lower weighting is, and we're not clairvoyant. So if we say that our benchmark's approximately 50% the U.S., it's reasonable for people to expect, you know, something, something if not close, but 5% would look ridiculous and 95% would look ridiculous. So we're, we're as underweight as we feel comfortable being. And the reason is we think there are some uh, rapidly growing, or there are other markets which have got better recovery prospects this year. But on the other hand, there are some rapidly growing sectors in the US where you can't get the same exposure elsewhere. So, uh, so we're, we're led really by where our fund managers find the best companies. And uh, my suspicion is that over time, our exposure to the U.S. will grow. Um, And it's not just the technology exposure that the U.S. has. It's been quite impressive that on the monetary and the fiscal side, they've been much more aggressive in stimulating their economy than other countries. So we might well get a a bigger growth surprise, as you alluded to earlier on from the Fed. The growth might well surprise more on the upside in the US than it does in Europe or, or possibly even the UK. Yes, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? So uh, actually, you're, under, you're actually significantly underweight yes. um, the, the benchmark in terms of the US, even though you've got over a third in, in, of your assets in there. And um, is some of that caution because or that underweight because you're a bit cautious about the all time highs that the US stock market has been been reaching. Um, but then, but, as you say, it has a record of bouncing back quickly from from crises like this. Yeah, it, I think it's it's not so much that. I mean, I, I think it's on a stock by stock basis that the 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 overvaluation or the high valuation of the US market tends to be concentrated in some of the most fashionable areas of the last year in you know, technology and Internet services. And those undoubtedly, many of them have great growth prospects. It's it's for debate whether those are 
you know, too fully discounted and earnings need to catch up. But the, the reason that we're underweight in the U.S. is not because our managers have thought we're going to be underweight in the U.S. They found companies with better earnings prospects for the price in, in other markets. And, uh, and you know, I, as, as the world evolves, I suspect that will, that will change. We're probably about as underweight as we're likely to be in the U.S., uh, but that's partly also on risk management grounds, that if people buy us as a global fund, they're entitled to feel that the U.S. is going to be, which is pretty much half slightly more than half of the global index, that, you're, that the US is going to be, tend to be your biggest exposure. Otherwise, you're misdescribing yourself. And does the same apply to the UK, but maybe in a kind of reverse way? Because um, you, know, you had a very difficult uh, start to last year because, as you said, you were, you were in the process of changing your benchmark and that yes. meant increasing the US, it meant reducing the UK. So I was kind of surprised in preparing for our conversation to see the UK is actually at 21%, so it's quite, quite large. So you're probably long-term thinking of reducing that to fit in with the, the global index. But I was just wondering whether actually, you know, a year ago, slowly reducing the UK was the wrong thing to do because the UK then gets hits for six uh, by, by, by the uh, pandemic. Yeah, it, but um, now, with the vaccinations going, it seems, relatively well, uh, and we've got some more Brexit clarity. Mm -hmm. um, is that is the UK looking more attractive to your fund managers? Is that why? Is that an explanation yes, for the twenty one percent? That is, in short, the explanation. I mean, yes, with the benefit of hindsight, we should have piled out of the UK as soon as the Brexit referendum happened, and maybe gone back in in December this year, or you know, the end, you know, three months ago. Um, I think the the point. I mean, I'll, just to clarify, we we don't. Our benchmark is not the global index. It's 15% UK and 85% the global index. So if you if you look through those two, the UK is about 18% of our benchmark. Um, so we are slightly overweight, but that's not a kind of deliberate thing. It, it's very much driven by um, by our managers' choices. If our global managers were not overweight in the UK, we would be quite substantially underweight. Uh, we have one UK only manager, which is Artemis, which is which handily beat the UK, the, the UK market last year and is doing so again this year. Um, I think what's happening is that you had a combination of Brexit uncertainty. The UK economy is heavily dependent upon services, which were much worse hit by COVID. And the sector, sector mix of the UK, not much tech, lots of oil and banks was a major headwind last year. But it seems to us and there seems more talk it's, it's perhaps in danger of becoming a bit of a consensus, but it's you know, maybe not a danger yet. But that seems discounted. And we think that being in the UK has actually become a tailwind. But we suspect that our, but we know that our managers are chosen, are choosing companies for their specific attractions. And if those attractions move away, then they'll look elsewhere for, for markets. So, so we're not structurally overweight, the UK. We're overweight through the choices and decisions of our various managers and uh, and the other thing to say is that a lot of our UK exposure, a bit like that of the market as a whole, is in international companies such as Unilever, Diageo, Relics, and so forth. We have relatively little, in fact, very little exposure to the oil sector, which is performing quite well at the moment. But we're 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 happy with that because in the in the medium term, we think the oil sector is is becoming obsolescent, and so we think there are there are better ways of playing the recovery. JP Morgan Investment Trusts have taken the long view, delivering sustainable income and attractive growth through the market's ups and downs for almost 130 years. Find out how you can join us at jpmorgan.co.uk forward slash long view.
In Europe, you uh, replaced two of your uh, fund managers there with global managers mm -hmm. last year, and you got 15% um, allocated to Europe. And does that, f which is less than the, than the US and the, the UK, yes. obviously, does that feel like the right uh, amount, given the problems Europe is, is facing with uh, the vaccinations, for example? I, th I think as an economic region, we see the UK, the, well, the UK to a lesser extent, perhaps, but your, Europe as a whole has tended to grow less rapidly than North America and obviously less rapidly than emerging economies. I think that's set to continue. And so as economies, we would want to be underinvested in Europe relative to the rest of the world. Um, that's not the same as the stock markets, because there are a lot of very good global companies um, who where the country of listing is of very little relevance to where they get make their sales. So um, much of our exposure to Europe is in luxury goods, and non-cyclical consumer goods. I mean, Heineken will be an example, Unilever, which obviously is a UK company, but, you know, sort of bilingual. Um, it's where our managers see the attraction. Um, I think, again, unlike a year ago, where we were structurally uh, overweight, as in we had allocations that meant that if those allocations were, were filled um, to, to our European managers, we, we had, you know, we couldn't help but be overweight in Europe, which is not where we want to be longer term. Now we're overweight just by choice, that one or two of our managers particularly have, have taken a view that, the, that, that Europe is a good area to find recovery stocks. And I think uh, once that's moved on, and, and actually one or two of the growth managers have found, have rifle shot some of the high, high growth stocks uh, in Europe as well, some of the technology stocks. There aren't many, but they've found one or two of them. So, so it's... Um, you know, we're, we're stock pickers in Europe. We're not asset allocators to Europe. Understood. And then last region uh, or regions to, to, to look at in our sweep of the world, mm -hmm. uh, um, Asia and emerging markets. You've got two fund managers, it, it seems, working for you and, and doing very well there. Matthews uh, in Asia and GQM in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it says you've got 13% uh, in, uh, in Asia. But uh, emerging markets, just, is emerging markets, where does that fit in? Is that part of other, which is only 1%? Or how much have you got um, in emerging markets? No, I think, I mean, in, in emerging markets at the moment, we've, we've actually got about, well, if you take Asia, we've got about just under 14%. And if you take emerging markets, excluding Asian emerging markets, we've got another 14, oh, sorry, another four. So the two combined are about 18% of our portfolio. And if you took them as a percentage of, the, of our benchmark, uh, Asia-Pacific and other global emerging markets are about 14. So we are overweight in those two areas combined, but they, but they overlap because our GQG, in fact it is, our, our, our emerging markets manager has a substantial weighting in, in Asian emerging markets because those are seen as some of the more appealing ones and uh, even though some of them are you know, quite well emerged. Um, and in fact, they you know, have a fairly large proportion of our China exposure comes from GQG. We're, we're overweight both of those categories. And the, the reasoning is that longer term, you're going to get faster nominal growth in those economies. Now, of course, that is not the same as saying that their markets are going to do as well. They, they're also exposed to the global economic cycle and also to sentiment on when dollar interest rates are going up, it tends to be a headwind for emerging markets. And we think at the moment that the cyclicals are aligned with the longer term growth availability. And, and also, we're very attracted by the stock picking capabilities that, of, of GQG in particular. So, um, uh, you know, we, we have been, you know, four or five years ago, relatively 
uh, lowly weighted in in those areas, and over the last year or so, it's it's benefited us to be relatively highly weighted in them. So it sounds like that uh, could be an amount that, that increases over time. I'm just curious, how, um, what about China? Where does China fit in? A lot of people took seeing you know, the long-term growth in China as being one of the really big themes uh, in, in the world. Yes. Um, how do you get your exposure there? I think there are two things. One is um, the country of listing is not the same as country of exposure. There are quite a lot of, I mean, Unilever, for example, a very large proportion of the growth in Unilever's profits over the last five or ten years has come from its exposure to emerging markets, even though it's a developed market stock. So uh, we have a, at the moment about 5% in, of our portfolio in China, which is, is, is not a lot, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's probably about a third of our exposure to Asia and emerging markets. Um, longer term, it's a fairly a good probability that China is going to become a, a larger part of the world economy and also a larger part of the world stock market. It's, that's certainly a trend that's been in place over the last 10 years. And, uh, and some of our global managers have positions in, in China. Um, some don't. But most of our exposure comes from uh, our emerging market and Asia managers. And they're, obviously, they're, they're taking a stock-specific view. And there are some particularly uh, uh, you know, the two themes that seem, seem to latch on to it for China the Chinese consumer and ways of playing that, which you can do from companies elsewhere, and some of the Chinese technology companies, which, uh, despite the slight you know, uh, uh, friction they've got with their own government at the moment, those have, have been seen, you know, the Alibabas and Baidus and so forth of, of this world have, been, have, have erupted onto the world scene in the last decade or so. Um, and there you're trying to trade off the growth prospects versus the uh, the internal and political governance of the country, where uh, it's not a market where you can be completely confident that um, that market forces will be allowed to to play out if it happens to disagree with the government at any particular point. So it's a growth honeypot, but you you do have to mind your eye. Hmm, absolutely. Okay. Well, listen. Thanks for that um, overview of, of sort of global asset allocation. Um, of course, you primarily work through choosing stock pickers. So let's we have a, a closer look mm -hmm. at some of the fund managers you've got. Um, you've got eight, and uh, we've we've mentioned a, a few already. Uh, Artemis uh, working on a UK special mm -hmm. situations uh, portfolio, and that's run by uh, Derek Stewart, yes. who's you know a very well known, very respected mm -hmm. fund manager. And they've got Lindsay Train. Um, running a global portfolio, one of several global portfolios mm -hmm. you've got. So obviously that's run by Nick Train and mm -hmm. uh, Michael Lindsell. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, then there's, and there's some other well-known names there as well, or maybe a bit less well-known, but Andy Headley at Veritas mm -hmm. and uh, Peter Davies at Lansdowne. Yes. I'm just, to what extent are you... Um, I'm interested to know a bit more about the, the, what they're running for yes. you, because we know what these managers do. But are they offering something different to their ret the retail funds um, that they're best known for? For example, Derek Stewart runs Artemis Special yeah. Situations. You know, what kind of overlap is there between what he does for you and it, what you can get pretty, in his fund? It's pretty complete. It's not absolutely it's not absolutely 100 percent, but it's there. It is. It's very similar, uh, but cheaper. Um, because obviously we're allocating, you know, one or two hundred million, or in some cases three or four hundred million to managers, and you can get better terms uh, than you would do if you're, uh, you know, an ordinary saver putting their annual ISA into a particular fund. 
Um, we, when we chose them, uh, we chose them, you, know, you choose managers on the basis of what you think their aptitudes are, what their methodology is most you know, best suited for, and, and to a degree, their performance uh, record, even though you healthy dose of skepticism about projecting it forward. So we've, when we've chosen people, we thought, well, what's the point in telling them to do something that's 20% different from what we think that they're good at? So, um, but, but, they, but the portfolios, once we have them, and, and we don't hold the funds, we hold segregated mandates. So a portfolio such as Linzel Train, which tends to have very low turnover, over time, their portfolio with us might well differ in exact weightings with their uh, open-ended fund because the open-ended fund can rebalance in accordance with flows in and out as time goes by. But the, but essentially, we're we're buying uh, something similar to uh, what they do for other similar clients. Whether that's you know some cases retail clients, some cases they don't uh, they don't have funds for retail clients. But generally speaking, we think we get economies of scale. Well, maybe okay, come come back to that. But I was just wondering, in terms of um, uh, fund managers, that was one of the kind of critical questions: is how long you know you pick them because you think they're good and they've been good in the past, and uh, but there will might come a time, might well come a time when they're not doing so well. How long do you give an underperforming fund manager before you you intervene and you know t- take the mandate away from them? I mean, there isn't a fixed answer to that, and the the, the most obvious reason is that you can't change past performance, whether it's good or bad. So I think the, the the point is very clearly when when performance is particularly good or particularly bad, you should be alert as to whether it's whether it's going to be extrapolated, and you should re, you should refresh your view as to whether you have confidence in um, in that manager for the future, and that might involve adding money to somebody on weakness. It might involve trimming a position if somebody's done very well. Or it might involve completely changing your view, but it's it's your view of the future, not your view of the past, that's useful. Okay. And how do you balance? Uh, you know, di- managers have different styles and different approaches, obviously. And there's a lot of debate now between the two, you know, two competing styles of value versus growth. Yes. Growth having dominated, but value coming back with a vengeance uh, since since November. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what is your view on this style debate? It's not a new one, yeah, but absolutely. what's your view? No, I, I mean, I think um, people have different definitions of what they mean by value and and in some cases the sort of systematic value is we want to buy companies on you know, the, the cheapest companies on a price to book basis or a, on a PE basis or whatever on the assumption that they will bounce back and that the, you know and 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 that is some that's a style that's been badly uh, punished over the last 10 years or so partly because we've had a, a very long period of relatively anemic growth when there wasn't a big enough cyclical bounce to get poorly managed companies out of trouble. So the sort of the mean reversion recovery story proved to be, uh, you know, proved to be uh, the crock of gold at the end of the rainbow. You could never get there. Um, So what we want to do is to buy the future growth in companies more cheaply than it's worth. And and obviously, you'll be willing to pay more for a company that's going to grow at 15 or 20 percent the one that's in a dependable industry that's growing at six or seven. Um, so you will. So we're not a, a, a allergic to paying high valuations for companies where we think the prospects are there. What, wh- where we're more skeptical, and this was where a, a year ago we felt that um, the the uh, pandemic catalyzed this. It meant it, it, it's 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 
it underlined the prospect that the future was going to be uh, was not going to be the same as, as the past had been for for many very cheap companies. So what we what we're trying to do actually is to buy managers with perhaps a bit of a an inkling towards growth, but 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 to be broadly speaking um, stylistically fairly neutral in in the round. Um, and where their stock picking is more important than which part of the value growth church they happen to inhabit. All of this has been done against the context of you know the, the massive challenge from from climate change. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you about another one of your uh, you know, interesting fund managers or investments is is in a fund called GMO Climate Change. Yes. I think that you are investing in the fund there rather than yes. having a your own sort of pot of money being managed. Yes, I mean the the the, the reason is it's twofold. One, as a found as an early founder in that fund, we got a, a, a concessionary fee. But the other thing is that when we initially invested, it was less than a one percent position, but it had one hundred and forty holdings within it, and we thought dividing a one percent you know holding in our portfolio one hundred and forty ways would have been very messy. So we've stuck with it as a fund investment. Um, it's it's run the GMO is a, a US-based company called Grantham Mayo Van Otterlo, uh, and Jeremy Grantham, who was one of the founders um, of it as a as a value management house. Historically, they made their reputation managing portfolios for institutions and so forth with a value bias, but he has also become quite a big name in the climate change debate, and he's he's quite interesting. You find a, a couple of uh, you know look on the internet for. Some interviews with him. He's quite, you know, he's quite passionate about it, and and he presented to our board two or three years ago, on the back of which we decided to, uh, we didn't actually know he had a fund when we invited him to present, um, and uh, for all the obvious reasons, we, th- you know, he, his view was if, you know, rather than doing something purely for ethical reasons, if this is something we are all going to have to do as a world to, to to mitigate the effects of climate change. It should be a business opportunity. So if you have a portfolio that is positioned to buy companies which will mitigate or counteract or you know, benefit from the necessary changes, that should be a that should be a good investment decision as well as a good decision for the planet and its people. Um, and so we we decided to. Uh, but but the, but he said also the thing is when something becomes fashionable, the valuations can get overhyped. So you can. You, you can find, you know, if you were so, so the value discipline they have means that they tend to reduce the weightings in areas that get particularly overheated in favor of other parts within the climate change portfolio that are that are slightly more neglected. And so it it's it it can't exclude, but it can mitigate the risk of being in an area which, as we can see at the moment, is seeing a lot of uh, fashionable fund flows. But we see this as, a, as the direction where a, a lot of portfolios are going to go. But we we wanted both to 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 make a statement, also, but also to benefit from a concentrated portfolio with that as its main theme. And and some of their holdings are, you know, in in industrial companies and mining companies on the basis that you know if you want to electrify the economy, you have you're going to need a lot more copper. Oh, that's, that brings me on to my, another topic, because um, GMO climate change has, has done very well for you last year. I think uh, returns are over 30%, if I remember yeah. correctly. But I was going to um, ask you about another part of your portfolio where you invest uh, directly in stocks and, and, and funds mm-hmm. um, and quite often take advantage of uh, 
you know, value opportunities in, in invest, other investment trusts. Yes. So you've got a stake in, uh, for a while, in uh, BlackRock World Mining, which uh, also came good for you last year. I just wondered whether there was a, a sort of uh, tension there with the kind of uh, climate change um, and environmental sensibilities of, of, of GMO. Yep. But um, I think you're going to tell me that there are env- environmental drivers for a, a lot of the specialist mine, mining, but mined metals. Yes, I mean, there's that, a, there's uh, a de- de- debate to be ha- held, clearly, because n- not every miner can justify its existence because it's helping to mitigate climate change. And, and some of them have had, yeah, you know, they operate in a very difficult industry and it's, you know, it's, you know and people, you know, do become injured and there's pollution and, and there are bad things about it. Um, so one of the things, as we were just mentioning, that um, that we're going to need a lot more copper to you know, electrify the transport and uh, the, tra- the transport industry, for example, is, um, you need far more copper for an electric car than you do for uh, an internal combustion engine car. Um, so there's that benefit. Uh, Black Rock as a manager have a very active um, ESG engagement with uh, pr- pr- process. Um, they're one of the sort of leading major institutional uh, you know, developers of best practice in in that area, and they actively engage with companies. I mean, one of which was you know Rio Tinto a couple of years ago, where the the company um, you know over- overruled local objections and and you know damaged some you know, Aboriginal sites in Australia. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not privy to all of the details of how they engage with the companies, but, but, but that and Noril Nickel, where they had the spill in the art. The point is, if we can't do without mining, what you need is uh, to, to engage with companies so that they are held to account when they uh, behave badly or, when, or, or, or whether by accident or deliberately, and that they're encouraged to improve and do whatever they do as cleanly as possible. And that, and if no no institutions invested with big companies, there would be nobody there to put pressure on them to change. So we we see it as a we we see BlackRock World Mining or, or you know our mining exposure as something which is uh, which is a, a a cyclical play from our point of view. We bought into it about six years ago, which was too early because it was just before the oil oil price collapsed and we kept on buying into the downturn and, and it's turned out to be an extremely profitable position for us because our our position cost is less than two pounds a share and the shares are, are now are now six pounds and, and have paid you know 20p a year dividend or so in the meantime another one of the sort of discounted opportunities that you've, you've bought into on the investment trust is schroeder real estate investment trust yeah we're interested in that one because that's had a, had a tough year and the shares are still at a wide yes. discount um you know yeah what's your view of uh, of that real estate investment trust and and, and its sector generally mm-hmm. obviously the office sector and retail sector have been profoundly hit affected by the uh, pandemic yes, and the lockdowns. What, 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 do you, what do you see, where do you see the recovery well, then, coming in at all? Before the oncoming train of the pandemic hit us, it was affected by Brexit sentiment. And, you know, that was what the opportunity we originally took to, to become invested. Our first investment was somewhere over 50p a share. They're now about 40p. Um, but it was a 5% discount to the then prevailing price. So it was, you know, in retrospect, we could have waited. But I, I, the, the point was that it's a company that we invested in about 10 years ago as well and, and did quite well out of. And the differentiating factor is that they, 
they, they're not really a mainstream play on London offices or retail parks. They have some exposure, but their, their, their main skew has been to try and get involved with more rapidly growing cities um, where uh, slightly more specialised industrial parks might uh, you know, have, have less specific tenant risk and potentially more more scope to upgrade the property and and get better rental out of them but it's it's a relatively small position for us it's it's under one percent um my own belief is that once we get back to some sort of normal economic life people will start assessing property companies on what the actual numbers are rather than a broad brush they've got office, office exposure offices are a dinosaur so we don't want to be involved um, people will start to look at the specifics, and this particular company we think has has got a reasonably uh, you know, on on their uh, their own projections of the dividend they expect to pay. They're, they they have a a yield of around about six percent, which now looks to have found a base and be growing, and they're buying back shares quite actively in the 40-41p a share range against an NAV in the upper 50s. So uh, they're doing the right things. And I think in due course, a combination of buying back shares and and re rehabilitation as people come to believe in the restored dividend will um, will lead some of the investors who who jumped ship a year ago when they dropped the dividend to to look back at them again. So it's it's uh, it's we think it's a cyclical play that's over that, that that's cheaper than it needs to be at the moment. Well, nearly uh, near at the end of our time, Andrew, but I'm just uh, referring there to sort of the you know, potential normalisation of life, getting back to normal life, whatever yeah. that is, um, and, and the office sector. Uh, just on a sort of personal note, so we're, we're you know, beginning to talk about uh, at CityWire, at, uh, you know, the office reopening uh, in, in possibly in June mm -hmm. and you know, how much, much time we're going to spend back in the office and how that's all going to work. What, what's, your, what's your situation? Have you been working at home, presumably, all, all yes, these months? Yes, we, we have. What, what? I mean, happily, we are... are uh, business continuity plan, which historically used to be, if, a, if, your, if your building catches fire, then you've got an office somewhere in South London or Canary Wharf that you can go to. In 2018, we decided we're a small enough number of people that the, the better thing was for us to work from home. And so we you know, equipped everybody with computer equipment to be able to work from home. So from about, I think, March the 16th last year, we've worked continuously from home. Personally, I'm probably going to start going back to the office uh, relatively occasionally next month um, and, and less occasionally from May or, or June onwards. And, and thereafter, it's going to be in, in accordance with both the individual comfort of, of, of my own colleagues and also what the government guidelines are. Absolutely. Well, that uh, all makes a lot of sense, Andrew. Well, uh, good luck uh, with that transition, and let's hope uh, yeah, we can all get back to, to whatever the normality we like uh, in due course. But uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for, for joining me and sharing me your thoughts. We've covered a lot of ground, and I think it's been very useful. So, um, yeah, uh, good luck with the rest of the year, and uh, thanks for uh, talking to Look me today. forward to actually meeting you in person again. Absolutely, in real life. All right, take so, care, bye. Andrew. Take the long view on your stocks and shares ISA with JP Morgan Investment Trusts.